This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 626. And the quote of the day is, the two most important requirements for major success are first, being in the right place at the right time, and second, doing something about it. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 626, and I hope everything is well in your world, and I'm seeing, I'm not sure what's going on with uh, with everything out there in the world with COVID. I feel like there's concerts going on still, but then at the same time, there's things that are starting to get canceled, so not exactly sure where we're at. All I hope is that you are being safe and, and uh, you know, your loved ones are being safe. So with that, uh, we are going to get into this conversation with Ben Wasaki. And Ben is the drummer from The Fray who had their meteoric rise to success in, in the early 2000s and continued on from there. And this conversation is great. We talk about starting as a young band, growing and having some growing pains as, as a young band. But then also we talk about records and what makes a good record and, and how the whole machine works in terms of records and music and, or I'm sorry, and radio and records and songs that come out and just a lot of great wisdom in here from a Denver born and bred guy who, who I mentioned in this episode that I feel like Denver is really having this, this mass influx of people who are moving there to play music. So he's someone who's been there since the beginning. So really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on. So we talk about that as well. And I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Ben Wasaki. Ben, what's happening, man? Hey, what's going on? Not too much. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. Uh, it's always, it's always nice going and so because you and i you know we we don't know each other we've never met uh so it's it's really interesting to get to know someone sort of in real time as you're recording it which i love but what i also love is going back and doing all the research and and learning about the person and all that and i have one bone to pick with you okay Uh, so we're just going to start off right on the right on the wrong foot let's do it let's get out of of the way so i you were going through your your nine you you're going through your nine favorite albums and then you said you couldn't figure out your your 10th favorite album um but the <laughs> counting crows record recovering the satellite you and i are around the, right around the same age so we grew up and you're like going through records i'm like yep yep i yeah it's like yeah. that was part of my repertoire that was part of my repertoire yeah uh my counting crows record was august and everything after right be, because i thought steve bowman's drumming on that was magical yeah. uh recovering the satellites a very close second yeah for me yeah. Um, what was it for you? What was it for for you for that particular record? That because I have a follow up about this, but what was it about that that particular record that really resonated with you? Yeah, I think, um, and I think this is the same with a lot of my favorite records of of some of my favorite bands, and it has more to do with the time and place, like the the time in which I discovered that band. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like Pearl Jam's No Code. I don't think is their best uh, record. Uh, I think that, but it's my favorite because it, that's when I discovered them and whatever right. place I was in, in my life, I have like, that was like soundtrack of my life at that time. And it, 
and it kind of just met up with me and where I was at. Same with recovering the satellites. Like mm-hmm. August and everything after is is everybody's like, you know. Well, here's another big example. Joshua Tree by you too. Right. That's everyone's favorite. Everyone's favorite, except I wasn't really around for that. You know, I didn't like that wasn't my I just barely missed that uh, because Mm -hmm. of my age. So Octum Baby uh, is like my record because that's my time. And I think it has more to do with time than anything else. And I can, you know, you uh, going back and listening to uh, 10 verses in Vitology by Pearl Jam. I get it. Going back and listening right. to August and everything after. Going back and listening to uh, early, early Wilco before Yankee Hotel. It's like, yeah, I get it. But there's like a the one record that, you know, inter- sort of like met me where I was at at that time. Of sure. Course. Yeah. Sure. So I that leads to the next question. It's like, what makes a great record? Is it is it circumstantial <laughs> and situational? You know, like, like you're just you diving saying, right in. Yeah. But like, but I mean, if you think about like time and place, like you had said, yeah, is it, is a great record what it means to the, to the person who's, who's holding the record in their hand and when they discover it, or is it based on sales and you know, what has got, what has gotten sort of shoved down the throats of everyone. And they're like, all right, I guess we just have to buy this, this record. Yeah. I think it, it, uh, well, maybe in the most ideal world it's it's a little bit of both right like a record mm-hmm. I, I don't think an album or an artist really succeeds or uh, on a on a large level if it isn't resonating uh and isn't relevant with culture at that time now right. you know there are examples you could say that the the industry machine if you have a good enough team of a good enough radio promo, good enough publicist, a good enough manager, whatever that they can make anybody a star and make anything successful, which to a certain extent is true, except the music industry all still revolves around. And, uh, the fuel for that fire is, uh, the general public is, is people are people and their, their, how, how they receive music. So I think, yeah, like I, I think what makes it, great album has a lot to do with time and place because music i think the most iconic records um resonate with culture at the time you know Mm -hmm. they they mean something to those people then um and then the ones that are timeless are ones that can continue to do that over Mm -hmm. over time the thing that always amazes me is that and I'm I'm not the only person that happens to that you listen to a record that you know you listen to a long time and immediately you're transported back in time to exactly sort of where you were how you felt you yeah. know, smells you know things that you see it's it's amazing how music can just transport you back to a particular time and yeah. and it, it you know and it further solidifies your point of like yeah place and time has a lot to do with why you love a record absolutely yeah. 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 Like I remember, uh, this is a fun example, but when I discovered No Doubt's uh, Tragic Kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, I was like a very young teenager and it um, it sort of represented everything it meant to me. Like all of my rock and roll ambitions 
how whatever it meant to me at that time to be rebellious was all sort of represented in this uh, no doubt record right. <laughs> you know uh which is funny you get to listen now it's like other people rebelled by listening to you know i don't know no black flag or something but um <laughs> right i guess for me it was no you were doubt. listening to a 25 year old <laughs> blonde chick <laughs> yeah i sure was but they, i mean no but they were badass they were badass, dude. And it, you know? like you go back and listen to that record, and I, it really is not a guilty pleasure for me because it's there's so much energy in like mm-hmm. in the vocals, in the arrangement, uh, the drumming. Like it's there's just so much energy in that record yeah. and those songs. You know, it's pretty it's pretty great. Still, it stands up. I I I agree. I agree. I think that. Uh... You know, I, I was joking when I was like, oh, you're rebelling with, you know, a 20 something woman. But like that chick, like she rocked and that band was it was a great band and, and yeah. they put out some great records. And, and yeah. you know, and like you said, stand the test of time. You can go back and listen to it and it still holds up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, So let's let's talk a little bit about you growing up. So you grew up, you were saying before before uh, we started that you grew up sort of in the mountains of of Colorado, right? Yeah, I was I was born in in uh, in the mountains in this town called Gunnison because my family lived in a, a smaller mountain town close to there, and that was the closest hospital. But um, then when I was one, we moved to Franklin, Tennessee, just outside Nashville, mm-hmm. and um, I was there till I was five because my dad worked for the symphony there in Nashville and for some other people in the music industry. And then we moved to Denver when I was five, so. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Denver, really, uh, from, gotcha. from five on. Yeah. So what did your father do? He was, man, my dad's always kind of been like a, a self-made hustler. Like he's always worked for himself and had like so many different jobs. Um, but well, so when we, when they lived up in the mountains, he was like a sheriff's deputy and he was a logger and he like repaired chainsaws like he did everything um and then but before that he traveled in this group called up with people in the Mm -hmm. 70s have you ever heard of up with people that i feel like someone has brought that up yeah they were like a a singing dancing group in the 70s of a very like um world peace kind of kumbaya sort of sentiment mm-hmm. um like they had one song called what color is god's skin you know so it's all right. it was all like a you know that kind of vibe right and, and um so he right out of high school he went on the road with this group because they would travel around to different like high schools and colleges and put on shows to recruit kids to come tour with them and and perform all over the world so they had different casts that would that would tour around and play shows all over the world. And so he signed up to do that and he was on stage for like maybe a year and then was like, this isn't for me. So then he got a job on the crew. So he drove the truck and was the stage manager and did all the tech side of that. Um, and he met my mom there in that because mm-hmm. she was she was also in up with people. And um, so all that to say, he. Uh, even though he's done a bunch of different things, it's always kind of been like the tech side production and tech has always kind of been a uh, thread that through the fabric of, you know, my dad. 
So he, for the bulk of his career, he's done video production. So gotcha. when I was in high school, he had this job. He got the contract to do the video for these country music festivals in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And uh, like they would run the, the video for the Jumbotron screens. Yeah. And so I grew up, my summer job in high school was going out to these country music festivals and running camera. Um, so I'd be like, it's not a bad gig. It wasn't man. I, I didn't grow up with country music at all, but uh-huh. so that, that was like the best education for me because these festivals were huge and they were 40, 50,000 people that would show up to these festivals. And the headliners were like Brooks and Dunn and Toby Keith and Alan Jackson, you know, like, uh, all of the, I mean, just to name a few, the like greats, right? Yeah, Faith and Tim yeah. and Martina, and then every once in a while there'd be like, like, like Willie and uh, the Oak Ridge Boys or Alabama, like all this. I got such an education in. Country were you music. into it though? Like, I mean, were you into the music? It took me a minute, not at first, yeah. not at first, right. but it, but yeah, it's kind of slowly, slowly grew on me, for sure. Just like with, I think, almost every genre, like. At first, you know, I like hated reggae, but then when you mm-hmm. hear good, good reggae and you learn about kind of where it comes from and uh, then you grow to love it. At least I did. But anyways, right. so, so yeah, that, my dad was kind of always in video production and, and tech. He always had like cameras and microphones and he had like a reel to reel tape recorder in the basement all the time when I was a mm-hmm. kid that I would mess around with all that stuff. Is that where, is that where the love for music started or did it start before that like when you were going to these concerts and and you're seeing you know the stuff that your dad was doing like where yeah. did the where did because I'm, I'm looking behind you and you have like racks of gear behind you as well so like yeah I'm, I'm guessing i'm like okay i know that you're a composer i know that that i mean there's a piano back there there's a xylophone back there like you're you like gear too i'm guessing yeah a little bit at least <laughs> uh which is in which is always interesting because all you know obviously i'm always having drummers on here and there's always gear and like whether it's me in the studio i'm at my house now but whether it's me in the studio or them in the studio and we always have an issue trying to figure out the sound on the getting getting the episode <laughs> recorded and we're always like it's like two it's, like, yeah. it's always like two bumbling idiots like trying yeah. to get, like well which way does this chord go in i'm like i don't know <laughs> it's yeah. all the time yeah and we're it's like funny. we could we could mic up a whole band behind yes. us but like getting this microphone to work on this laptop forget it At lost cause yeah <laughs> it's funny anyway yeah. so uh so is that where i mean having that stuff in your house is that is that where your love for for gear and music and and sort of and production and things like that started it certainly helped i i mean my love for music um started at a really young age before no one really uh uh like fed that to me i think mm-hmm. i just sort of found it and like when, when i was in diapers i was like beaten on couches and pillows and um my parents told me that they bought me my first drum set just to like protect their furniture because i was <laughs> just beating on dashboards and couches and pillows and so when i was really young like maybe two three they bought me a little toy drum set mm-hmm. that I beat the crap out of. And then my second drum kit, I'm pretty sure, was was a, was a 60s Rogers kit that my grandpa um, had. And he sent it out to me. Both of my nice. grandfathers, 
yeah, both of my grandfathers were drummers and mm-hmm. um, very different drummers, but both of my grandfathers were drummers and musicians. And, that, and then it skipped a generation, really. Like, neither of my parents were very musical, except like my mom played in like uh, the marching band, like piccolo and, and flute and stuff. But mm-hmm. it, they didn't really make like a career or a life out of it. Um, gotcha. So it skipped a generation, but both my grandfathers were drummers, had a bunch of, of drums and instruments. Like those vibes behind me were my, my grandpa's. Those are some Deegan vibes from the 40s that oh, yeah. were his that I inherited. And um, those things are heavy. Really heavy. Yeah. Yeah. We used to, we had a set of Deegan vibes uh, in college and we used to have to move all the time. And I'm like, man, these things are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that. You know, there was there was something in the in my blood that I, I think I was, you know, uh, meant to make uh, rhythm uh, mm-hmm. and play drums and keep time. And so, yeah, I started playing drums when I was really young and then just never really stopped. I, I fell in love with it the deeper I got in. So mm-hmm. I think all of the some of the gear that was around the house and my dad's some of his career choices certainly helped. But I right. think the seed was planted uh, before then, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What other, inter- I mean, you obviously, like you have the vibes behind you. There's a piano. What else? So, and I know that you're a composer. Are, do you consider yourself a multi-instrumentalist or are you like, I'm a drummer and I play these other instruments as well? Yeah, I, I really don't consider myself that way, actually. Like in recent years, I've gotten into producing a lot. And so mm-hmm. I love collecting instruments to have in the studio for everyone else. Um, right. I can sit down at the piano and, and figure it out, you know, mm-hmm. and I can, I can like play guitar if there's a gun to my head, but I, but no, I, I've, I've always been surrounded by better piano players, better guitar players, better songwriters. Uh, drums and percussion is really my, like, that's my wheelhouse. And then outside right. of that, as I got into producing and I love recording, I love being in the studio and producing other artists. So then I loved collecting like synths and keyboards and pianos and guitars and amps and guitar effects. Um, Mm -hmm. All of these things just to have in the studio for other people, you know, to utilize uh, when they get here. So it's, you know, I I really love building out like an environment, that has everything you need like to, mm-hmm. to, to accomplish what, you know, what you're trying to accomplish in the studio. So that makes sense. I wouldn't really consider myself a multi-instrumentalist. Um, although sometimes yeah. in the studio, if I can pluck out an idea or, or, you know, get a sound across, but, but no, I, I think I, you know, they say about like mastering something 10,000 hours or whatever that is, right. that, that really only exists for me on the, in the drums and percussion realm. So what what about when you're when you're composing or you know you're writing tunes are you are you doing that on piano or are you doing it collaboratively with other people It's that so that whenever I've been involved with that it's all been collaborative Yeah Gotcha Yeah um I think that I I work really well in that environment when I'm sort of bouncing off of somebody else I think that's where I kind of found a a love for producing because I think I'm not really, I can't take an instrument 
a melodic instrument and go into a room and lock away and come out with like a song. That's mm-hmm. not, that's not really my strength or, and I don't actually think my interest either. Um, right. But I love when there is a sound or a song or an idea that already exists that someone else brings or someone else has in the room that I can hear. And then it inspires all these ideas and I can say, yeah, what about this? And, you know, or what if we paired that with this idea over here? Or what if it was slower or what if it was played in this way? And just kind of like, that's what I did and discovered was kind of my strength in, in the fray. And, Mm -hmm. and then that's what kind of got me like, Oh, I wonder if this, you know, if there's more to that. Um, whenever mm-hmm. I wasn't actually behind the drums, it was always like I always had an opinion about what was being played or a different way that to, for it to be played or sung even. Right. It's it's funny to me. There's um, there's a guy I know. He's a phenomenal guitar player, and but he writes tunes, and he's not a good songwriter. Yeah. Right. And he's probably like one of the best guitar players that I've I've seen and. Uh, and, but it, it's interesting that just because you can play doesn't mean you can necessarily write. And right. there's a lot of people who can write, but can't necessarily play. Once you, you know, you yeah. get those two people in a room together though, and you pick out people's strengths and weaknesses. And like you're saying, start to put these things together and yeah. maybe have someone that can help you go down the road a little bit and can lead you down the path and say, look, what you're playing is really cool. Why don't you try this? You know, like you said, change yeah. some things around. You yeah. start to craft this thing. Um, I I I think sometimes it's it's difficult for us to admit what our weaknesses are, though. That's it's true. Like, that's a, yeah, I I'm guess, not good at this thing. Yeah, I guess that's a very human thing, you know. I, I uh, and I certainly will admit that I I it was much easier to ad- admit my strength and lean into that. But mm-hmm. by by doing yeah. that, you you know, you naturally find that the weakness sort of defines itself. You know, there's like a positive image inherently creates a negative one. So you have, you find the void. And I think that that was very obvious for me in a collaborative band setting because, Mm -hmm. you know, um, all the songs were being written by better songwriters. The guitar parts were all being written and played by the guitar players in the band, you know, like, so uh, that it was a little bit easier um, or a little bit more obvious to see where my role was and where it wasn't. We all sort of fell in fell in line there, right? And you were young when you joined the fray, right? You were what? It was two thousand four. Yeah, um, yeah, just around two thousand four. Yeah, and I was, yeah, like I mean, we were playing bars before uh, before I could get into bars, essentially, right? Right. But it's an eye opener when you're, I, well, I'm going to speak for myself because maybe you weren't this way. But for me, when I was 19, 20 years old, I was like, oh, I'm the best. You know, I'm like, I'm really good at what I do. And then you get into this, into this room with other people and, you know, with like the guys in my band. And I was like, oh, like you understand songwriting a lot better than I do. Or yes. you understand, that you, wow, you're a much better musician than I am. Okay. Now I need to like, now I need to step up because yeah. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Yeah, like for me, I, I I like um because I grew up playing drums from such a young age. I grew up in church, and mm-hmm. most of my musical uh, maturing happened in church because I would play like 
every Sunday at least. And then sometimes if the youth service happened on like Friday night or something, I'd play for that as well, which meant then a rehearsal earlier in the week, probably. So I had like, you know, all the way through late, uh, late grade school, junior high, high school, I, I had like at least two gigs a week consistently. Um, the fact that they were at church almost didn't matter, but the point was, I was playing with people in front of people consistently for a long time and which really helped. And I was in an environment in the suburbs where, you know, I I was maybe one of two drummers at the church. The other one was, you know, 30 years, my senior. And so I, I was, I had the kind of the monopoly on that market there in the church. Everyone was like, Oh, Ben's the, the drummer. And whether I was the best drummer or not didn't really matter. I was just the drummer. Mm-hmm. And so then I, like you said, I started to believe that I was the best drummer. And then in a very short amount of time, I got, you know, the fray was out on tour with other bands, with drummers that were way better than me. And it was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, got some work to do. Yeah. Who, uh, who were some of the band? Do you remember some of the, the bands or the drummers that you, that you were seeing and you were like blown away by? Yeah. Um, I had, you know, I had like my, uh, heroes growing up, which were really just the drummers of the bands I love. I, mm-hmm. because I never really was a big, like drummer's drummer. Like I didn't really like a drummer just because of what he did. Like I wouldn't really watch drum i mean i went to like a top couple drum clinics and i would watch like right drum instructional videos but more of what i loved was drummers in bands that i liked i, I liked mm-hmm. that drummer because of the songs and the albums and the music and, and yeah. the music yeah right. um so those were you know like um the the pearl jam drummers from matt chamberlain to jack irons mm-hmm. um to Dave Abruzzi's and uh, and then Matt Cameron, Ben Mize from the Counting Crows was huge, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, Carter Beaufort from the Dave Matthews Band in junior high was like my everything. He was probably the, yeah, he was the closest to like a drummer's drummer that I got. You know, yeah. like I had those instructional videos on VHS and everything. Oh yeah, under um, the table and drumming. Yep, Dude, <laughs> you I, know it. Dude, I watched it so many times that it broke and I bought another one and I watched that so many times <laughs> that broke and I bought it. And then the third time I bought it on DVD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I started, I like got the gloves just like he did. And I would started, <laughs> I started chewing gum, like bubble gum, just like he would, you know, like. This is amazing. Yeah. I, all all the things. Amazing. Uh, but Were you learning the tunes too? Oh yeah. Yeah. I yeah. was in a band in, in maybe the seventh grade that would cover ants marching, you know. Nice. Uh, all this stuff. But um, yeah. you're yes. you're speaking my language. I was like, I always tell, yeah. I'm like, Carter Beaufort taught me how to play drums because I'm yeah. like, I learned every song. I didn't go so far. I didn't get the gloves and the bubble gum, which I yeah. now I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm regretting at this point. Yeah. Did you move the ride symbol to the left? I tried, but it, yeah, I yeah, tried. That didn't really stick, <laughs> you know. <laughs> very short lived. Yeah, but when we when the fray, you know, the we had a pretty short rise. At, to success and by short i mean maybe two and a half three Mm -hmm. years and um so by like 2006 
um, we were touring, like, I think that one of the first tours we went on, this might have been 2005, actually, late 2005, early 2006, we went out um, opening for Weezer because we knew mm -hmm. their manager. And, and he was like, hey, you know, uh, we need an, you know, a support act for like two weeks of this tour. They didn't really need it. They were, they were like, obviously, they didn't need anyone to sell mm -hmm. tickets or whatever. Right. They're like, let's just put somebody on stage before Weezer. And, uh, you know, a, uh, a pretty inexperienced and green, naive, mid-tempo piano rock band was the obvious choice. <laughs> uh, but we, I mean, I loved Weezer. We all loved Weezer. The Blue Album yeah. was like one of those, like, soundtrack of our lives thing that we were talking about. And I remember, like, this, this had a huge impact to me. And if I ever, if you know interact with this guy again i'll make sure he knows but pat the drummer in that band i remember we were opening for them and we played a few amphitheaters and like some different arenas and things and this was around the time that they had that um song um uh, beverly hills do you remember that mm -hmm. beverly yeah. hills that's yeah. where i want yeah. yeah so it was like that point in their career um but they would play all the the hits from the blue out you know um, Say It Ain't So and Buddy Holly and My Name is Jonas, mm -hmm. all those things. And I remember in Say It Ain't So, I remember standing side stage and watching Weezer play for 10,000 people or whatever. And Pat behind the drums had the most uh, consistent amount of energy. It's not that he wasn't dynamic, but you could tell that he he didn't get caught up in the moment. Like, when the chorus of Say It Ain't So came, this huge ball, ball, bow, da, da, right? It's like yeah. huge. Everybody's air guitaring this. All the lights are freaking like going. It's this huge moment. And he kept it so consistent. Like, I think that it was really a big learning experience for me because I was young and I would get caught up in everything and yeah. either play too hard or, or speed up is, is obviously typical because mm -hmm. you emotion gets the best of you you know and then you go back and watch a video or listen to a recording and it sounds like shit because right you know being excited doesn't always <laughs> right. you know equate being a good player making good choices and watching him in all of the excitement of the moment in that huge chorus play just as consistent every hit on the snare sounded exactly like it should and i was mm -hmm. like Wow. Okay. So that, that was a huge thing for me, um, watching him and kind of learning how to manage, you know, in, in front of a crowd like that on stage and all the excitement to still just kind of like keep your head down and do your job. You know, it's right. Um, there's that, definitely a learning curve going from playing in front of a hundred to 500 to 1500 to, yes. you know, 15,000, like there, yeah. you are not playing the same way in front of 500 people that you are in front of 25,000 people. Exactly. It's just it's, it's, it's yeah. mechanically like, I mean, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but just for people yeah. listening, like there's a, that was, that was a hard thing for me when we went to like bigger stages. I was sort of like, felt like I, I don't know about you, but I was always trying to like still push the room. Uh-huh. Right. You know? Yeah. And to a certain extent, you obviously have to match the, the, the room you're in. Um, you're a performer. Like when you play a live concert, people are coming to, to see you play these songs. If all they wanted to do was hear you play the songs, they would, they just put on the record at home, you know? Right. But 
so I had to, I like, I've, I enjoyed that part of it. I enjoyed like giving people a little bit of a show, raising my hand a little bit higher when I hit the drum, but, um, but still like the point is, uh, you're making music, you're making right. sound. So if that starts to take away from your ability to play the instrument, yeah, I think that, you know, that's kind of gone too far. So mm-hmm. I learned to trust the, trust the microphones that were on my drums you know, after a certain point, when the venues get so big, uh, it doesn't matter how much harder you play. Because uh, in actually a huge venue, if the drum mics are muted, no one's hearing shit. Whereas <laughs> right. in a tiny venue, they turn the drum mics off. There might not even be like mics on the drums in a the, tiny right, venue, right. you know? So all the dynamics mean a lot. Whereas in a huge venue, you know, um, you kind of learn to trust the trust the sound guy, trust the mics, trust the system. Um, and that's just a huge, obviously a huge learning curve. That took me a long time. Have you checked out the new Maximus snare drum from Mapex? Designed by Jeff Hamilton with a nod to the traditions of jazz greats, the Maximus has the sound and feel of a vintage drum built with modern precision and articulation. Made from a six inch deep, 100% mahogany shell, it's outfitted with a special snare bed for the execution of the most dynamic playing. It's a choice for a warm, big sound with the ability to whisper in the most delicate small group settings. Tradition meets modern voice, the Maximus is a commanding instrument for all forms of playing. To check out the Maximus and the rest of the Black Panther Design Lab series, check out mapexdrums.com. Get ready for the new Promark. Promark is reintroducing itself with two new performance pillars. Promark, the home of their rear-weighted, performance-driven rebound and finesse lines, and Promark Classic, a celebration of the timeless feel, look, and straight-ahead performance of Promark's golden era. It doesn't matter which pillar you choose because every pair of Promark sticks is perfected with ProMatch. Only ProMatch ensures unrivaled consistency of weight and pitch from stick to stick and pair to pair. Also, Promark shows its commitment to the environment with Play, Plant, Preserve. Promark is planting trees with every pair of sticks sold. They've already planted approximately 600,000 trees back to the Tennessee soil, and they're not stopping there. When you play Promark, you're playing the only drumstick out there made from sustainably sourced and replanted wood in keeping with their vision for a net neutral future. For more information, visit Promark.com. So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch, or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is all built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 dash drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out 
the sonar drum configurator. So when you were when you're playing these, when you started moving up from smaller venues to bigger venues, uh-huh. how how did that adjustment go for you, or, or what were some of the things that you did? Was it a matter of sort of analyzing after the gig and realizing, oh, my hands are maybe hurting, or maybe you know talking to the sound guy and they're saying, look, you don't need to hit the drums that hard. What what did that, or were you listening back to the show? How did that adjustment go for you, or was it just sort of a natural learning as you go? Yeah, it was, it was actually a combination of all those things that you just mentioned. But at first, like the first time that we played, that we were really playing our own shows that were really huge was 2007. We did our first amphitheater, headline amphitheater tour where Mm -hmm. we were headlining, you know, 10 to 15,000 capacity sheds outdoors. And, um, I, at that time, this was before, uh, obviously before social media really, um, on a big level. And so mm-hmm. I, I think the biggest thing at first was that I would just be exhausted. I didn't, I hadn't really learned how to like budget my, my energy in mm-hmm. a show. Like we, you know, we'd play an hour and a half. Um, or a little bit more, hour forty five minutes, and I'd get off stage just toast, like exhausted and and sore. Um, and so that was the first wake up call. Like ah, maybe I need to be making a different choice about how I <laughs> how I manage and really just budget my energy. And so I started like, mm-hmm. if there's a song within the set, I would look at okay, what songs are really the dynamic peak here, and where can I really go for it. And where should I maybe hold back and reserve a little bit? Um, and that was the first thing was just on a physical level. Just mm-hmm. how, how can I not be exhausted so that I can do this, for, you know, five nights in a row? Um, and then the next level was, was yeah, we got a, a sound guy who, who started tracking every show, um, mostly for his own sake, so that in line check the next day, he could pull up the show from the night before and things like that. And um, right. Right. I would go out before soundcheck, I'd go out to front of house and sit with him and listen. And it was some of the same things. The first, the first thing I noticed was like the cymbals. Um, some of the cymbals just like, I, I'm a firm believer in some drums choking when you hit them too hard. You, know, you just like, mm-hmm. um, and so I started hearing that like the drums kind of just like sounded choked and kind of sounded shitty. And I was like, wow. Ah. It wasn't him necessarily saying, you know, hey, I think you should not hit as hard. But it, it was it was me. I heard it and I was like, man, that sounds kind of like shit. Um, so we started experimenting. with. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, he's like, I'm the one that pays him. So I think he was kind of like, you know, like the, the band's always right. Um, right. And so. Yeah, I started like experimenting with that a little bit and, 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 and then again, like I would communicate with him like, hey, I'm going to adjust my levels a little bit. And so he would make up for that. And, um, and then a, f- a few years after that, I started watching a lot of our shows. Like we would film them. We'd set up a little, a little video camera, a handheld camcorder out at, mm-hmm. at front of house and film every show. And then I'd get on the bus and watch it just because I, like, I liked seeing how it was coming across. and. Um, and then that turned into, I mean, that was like a very 
cumbersome way to do it. And then a few years later, you just, I would get on the bus and just get on YouTube. And then after that, it was just getting on Instagram. You could see, you can see the show so much easier now, you know? Right. Um, but I always loved doing that because, uh, you know, it may be coming across to you in such a way on stage or through your in-ears or the wedges or whatever, but the way it's coming across off stage is really what, what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved watching videos, even if just somebody's iPhone audio, um, that's a, a pretty good inter, you know, uh, representation of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would review shows a lot and kind of watch and listen and see what was working and what wasn't. I, I liked doing that. Yeah. I forget who it was that I had on the podcast, but they were saying drums are the only instrument that we can't walk out in front, you know, walk out to where the the fans are and listen to ourselves play. Yeah. You can grab a guitar and if you have a long enough chord, you can just walk out and listen to it. Yeah. But from drums, everything is so distorted or not distorted, but 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 the you know the perception of it is distorted yeah. because you're sitting behind it where the sa- all the sound is going away from you you're hearing it in maybe you're hearing it in wedges but maybe that's not an accurate representation of what you're hearing and everything it's difficult i think a lot of times we end up hearing our drums from the front and say oh wow that's that's what they sound like yeah oh i didn't or either that that's a it's a really good thing or it's a, sometimes it's a really bad thing yeah, I started, I would have my tech, like once I settled on a drum tech that I really trusted and he and I had a good rapport, he worked for me for a while, I'd have him play during soundcheck and I'd go out um, to front of house. But even then our sound guy would always say like, he doesn't, you know, you play very different than he does. So they don't sound anything right. like this. I was like, well, that's no help. You know? Okay. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Tell him to play more like me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you had mentioned the 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 fray sort of it was sort of a meteoric rise. You know, it it, it wasn't uh, like it, it didn't take that long from from I don't want to say from where you started, but from where you started gaining traction to playing these these bigger venues and things like that. Yeah. Um, what was in the initial stages of that band? Uh, how did that? How did all of that come together? And then how did that that rise happen so quickly? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, first of all, I, I think a lot of it was, like we were talking about earlier, time and place, mm-hmm. um, right place, right time. Uh, there's a certain amount of luck that's always involved. But and then also we just, you know, we just kind of kicked butt like any other local bands. Uh, I, I don't think we were really doing anything that was revolutionary or or that much different than what a local band does and that that wants to make it we are just kind of working our butts off um right and we when we were playing around denver we couldn't really afford to to tour touring outside of of colorado is hard because we're in the middle of the country where it takes us i mean the closest town is cheyenne wyoming um and that's right. that's not really a touring hot spot other than that santa fe new mexico six hours but mm-hmm. again, that's not a big, you know, there's not like a huge scene there. So it takes eight to 10 hours to get to any other big town. Um, and even that, it's Kansas City, it's Salt Lake City. So we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so we didn't really tour much is the point. So right. that meant all the playing that we did was around town. We played a lot in Denver and Boulder a little bit in Fort Collins, the, the little towns around Denver, but 
we we essentially flooded the market which now maybe <laughs> might be a strategy but it it's just the only thing we could do is like for a while there we'd play like every weekend whether it was our own show or opening for somebody else or whatever right and i think that even though not every show was very well attended because some people would be like well I just saw you last weekend. Why would I come see you again? What's different? You yeah. Know, I'd like, well, and, and if I don't see you this weekend, I'll see you next weekend. You're probably playing on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think what it did was we were on every, like the, the little weekly newspaper that in the back page had all of the, the shows. We were always listed on there and there were always posters up. There were always flyers out. Like our name was everywhere. Like, um, mm. And I think that did a lot. Like we kind of became a household name locally, whether anybody had actually seen us or not. And people were coming mm-hmm. to shows, you know, we would, it got to a point where we, you know, we're bringing two, 300 people to a show, which on a local level is really good. And that was happening yeah. consistently. But even people who weren't coming to shows knew who we were because our name was everywhere. And we were always opening for people. We played a lot. Um, and that, I think combined with us sending our songs to local radio, we have at the time we had two radio stations that were major FM radio stations, but they had like a local show like on Sunday night mm-hmm. or whatever. And that yeah. re- really supportive to the local scene and really supportive DJs. So we just kept singing, sending our music there and, and a, a couple songs finally took at some of those radio stations and people reacted positively to them on the radio locally which then meant they were coming out to shows so then that 200 people turned into 500 and we just kind of built built a name for ourselves locally that Mm -hmm. then from and you were on i mean there was like you were unsigned at that point right oh yeah yeah we had like maybe two eps we'd made ourselves but totally unsigned didn't have a manager like nothing Mm -hmm. um and so from the outside looking in there's this band in Denver that's got a couple songs in regular rotation on the radios and they're bringing 500 people to a show, sometimes more. It's like, wow, there's like something happening. We didn't have anything going anywhere else, but in town it looked like there was really something. So mm-hmm. we attracted some attention of some, of some labels and some scouts um, because we would play competitions and win best new band at local things and whatever. Right. Um, so uh, Epic Records was one that, that was courting us at the time, and they came out and saw a show, and um, that led to us. Uh, it led to a little bit of a bidding war with a couple other labels, but we ended up signing with Epic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that brought all the managers. We were negotiating the record deal before we had a manager, so then all these managers were trying to hop on board. Um, and then in a very short amount of time, we Epic flew us out to Bloomington, Indiana, where we got a, a deal on the uh, studio there. The A&R guy had a connection at a studio there that was owned by Mike Wanchek, who was um, Mellencamp's guitar player. I was going to uh, say, that's uh, Kenny Arnoff is from there. Yeah, yeah. So and oh, th- that's the whole like Mellencamp connection, exactly. I guess, because they're both from Bloomington. And, yeah, yeah. Um, our A and R guy was his name is Mike Flynn, and Mike also produced or co-produced our first two albums. 
Um, mm-hmm. And he played uh, accordion and some keys for Mellencamp for a short time. And gotcha. so that was the connect there. Um, so we went out to Bloomington just because he's like, hey, I can get this studio for cheap. Um, so we made the first record there and then um, and used like the Jack and Diane acoustic on some songs and stuff. You know, it's kind of cool. And That's then awesome. uh, we went out uh, in support of that record, that first record. And and the radio success was was the biggest thing for us initially. Like Those first couple of songs. Mm-hmm were really big on radio um so a lot of the first few years for us was like touring chasing radio like what what markets were playing our song we would just go there and do just a crap ton of radio promo and interviews and get up early for the morning show and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but it paid off because radio was always a really big big thing for us i think that was kind of the uh big launch off point for us Do you think radio is as big or as important as it was then? Uh, no. Short answer, no. I think, right. I think radio still is a monster. Um, but, you know, now there's so many more independent radio stations. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot more radio stations. There's Now there's satellite radio. And streaming alone, I think, like, I feel like people listen to music on Spotify the way they used to listen to radio. Like people who follow certain uh, new release playlists on Spotify will just put that on and listen to it passively as if they were putting on a radio station. That's just kind of how people consume now. And right. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's changed a ton. I don't, I don't think the role that radio played for us back then in the early mid two thousands would I don't think that would really do the same thing for an artist. Right. The thing that that I've noticed more and more, and maybe it's just me because I'm I'm not actively listening, but I'll hear songs on the radio and I know, you know, I know the song, I know the lyrics, you know, just because I've heard it a thousand times, but I have no idea who sings it. Yeah, right, right, right. And I feel like there's so many songs that are out there now that I'm like, I know them. I know the song. Yeah, yeah. Like I've heard it a thousand times. Yeah. If you were like, I'll give you a million dollars to tell me who the artist is. I have absolutely yeah. no idea. Yeah. It's funny, man. That's, <laughs> I think that's always somewhat been the case, especially now. Like, you know, back in the day, DJs would come on and they would intro songs or they would, mm-hmm. say, you know, I don't think that happens as much anymore. And, but even back, you know, the phrase certainly fit a, there was a, there was a thing happening between the fray and uh, maybe five for fighting and the script and one Republic and keen and all these bands that kind of all, we all sort of sounded the same, you know, um, Lifehouse maybe was in there. Like, mm-hmm. and so I think it was like, sometimes at some meet and greets, we would get some people who were like that passive radio fan who, you know, they might have won the tickets to the show or whatever, and they come to a meet and greet, and <laughs> they'd be like, "Oh man, I love that one song." Like fill in the blank, and they name somebody else's song. You know, that's right. like they would name some Lifehouse song or a One Republic song or something. We'd be like, "Cool," um, <laughs> but you know, I'm sure the same thing was happening to those other because it all kind of sounds the same. 
And right. if you don't really know, that's that was all sort of in the same soup there for a while. <laughs> but, you know, I think that happens in every sort of cluster of music because I remember uh, Rob Thomas telling me that he was like in Vegas and some girl went up and she's like, can I have your autograph? And he's like, sure. And he signs it and she's like, I love Goo Goo Dolls. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's like, yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're a great band. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I think that that radio, that I mean, radio then particularly, like you said, I mean, it was a monster. Like if you got on, if you got on radio and you got picked up by yeah. major radio stations, and you got a hit on your hands. I mean, that's that's life changing. Oh man! Yeah. I mean, that's how I think we went from playing clubs in 2005 to amphitheaters in 2007 because. I think because of that, we had tens of thousands of passive fans who maybe knew two songs, but it didn't matter. Right. They're buying the ticket anyways. They'd get a seat on the lawn for 20 mm -hmm. bucks and they'd come out with their friends. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the way that happens. But you're right. Like we played these uh, holiday shows like the Jingle Jams and the Not, Not So Silent Nights and all those kind of right. things around the holidays. And we would show up to these shows that are little mini festivals where every, some of the top played acts on the radio station that year all showed up and played three, four songs each. And it was wild. It's like a, a live in-person playlist where yeah. these fans show up and like we would play these shows for Z100 in New York, but one of the biggest, you know, radio stations mm -hmm. in the country, we'd show up to Madison square garden and, um, like it was like us and the killers and Justin Bieber and Rihanna and John Mayer and Taylor Swift. And it was wild. Like at first you're like, how the hell did we get here? <laughs> but it wasn't us. It was our songs. You know, it's right. like just our, we would get up and play four hits that everybody in the room knew. And that was it, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is a trip, man. But yeah, it was a, a massive thing for sure. What is the, what's the motivation behind doing one of those shows like going and playing you know is it is it to be ingratiated by the by the the record people yeah or, or by the or by the uh i should say the the radio people yeah i mean like you don't want to be the band that's like no we that don't says want to no, play your show totally yeah. because the next time you put out a new song they're like cool we, you know we don't yeah. want to play it <laughs> you're like oh <laughs> got it um, yeah, it's, there's certainly politics involved there. Radio mm -hmm. politics are like, oof. Um, yeah, it's radio politics. It's also just like being current, uh, which I don't think we knew any better. We don't, we certainly were never cool enough to not care, you know, right. which I remember we'd show up to shows like that. The, the killers were also playing that they get up to play like when you were young, uh, or what's it called? No, oh, that's Adele. When we were young, I guess, and um, uh, they had this like super badass, like we don't really want to be here, but I guess we'll play this song for you kind of attitude, and it was so attractive. I'm like, damn, you know. Whereas for us, that was like the highlight of the month. We got to play like, man, we're at Massacre Garden, and Taylor Swift is playing after us, like whatever. It was like so exciting, and I'm sure yeah. it was to them too. But they had they had a, a different poker face that was so good. yeah. <laughs> I never mastered that that uh 
the the sweat or the vibe, you know. No, so I'm funny. still working on that. <laughs> it's funny because later we we got to know them a little bit and some of their their crew guys, and um, <laughs> like a, a few years later, we were in London uh, staying at this hotel that was hosting a party for an award show that night that we had nothing to do with. We just happened to be in town, mm-hmm. and I I like left the hotel to go to the convenience store get something, and I came back and the the guy out front wouldn't let me in because he's like, oh, there's a private party. And I'm like, but I'm staying at the hotel. And he's like, I'm sorry, man. It's a private party. I was like, what? No, I, I don't think you understand. Like, I need to get into my room, you know? Right, and so, right. like, some of the killers guys and their crew and everything all, like, showed up. And they're kind of all really tall, bearded guys with cool jeans and big boots from the, from <laughs> Vegas. You know, they show and they're like, what's going on? I was like, I don't know. This guy won't let me in. They, they said it's like a private party. And they just like moved the velvet rope and just like, <laughs> come on, dude. They just like pushed me in. And I was like, okay. I just felt like their little brother or something. You know? You're like, I'm with them. I'm with them. Yeah. I'm with them. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And they had, no, did they have anything to do with the, the party either? I guess Pro- not. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> it was probably their party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, don't let anyone from the fray in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so what what sort of projects and, and things are you working on now that you're excited about? Yeah, so I'm um, right now, most of my energy right now is going to like producing some artists here in Denver. Um, some of which are friends and, and then others are just like, artists that I just met through the community, like when the fray went on hiatus, I kind of had to reconnect with the music scene here because um, I I didn't really know it. I was pretty detached mm-hmm. from it for a while. And so I kind of had to reconnect, which was awesome. And um, in doing that, I met some friends, some cool bands, artists, I was going to shows, kind of like what's happening here or who's kind of come up since we've been out found um and so i just produced i've produced a few full-length albums a couple like singles and collaborations and stuff like that but um most mostly in the folk and kind of americana realm um Mm -hmm. i have a soft spot for that in general but then also there's just like a lot of the friends that i made just happen to kind of be in that scene here so there's a young artist named Cole Shifley who uh, I just produced a record for. He just put out a record that we did last year. Um, and then I just finished an album for this artist named Covenhoven. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy named Joel, he goes by the moniker Covenhoven. So we just did uh, a record that I'm really excited about, um, most of which was in this room. But, nice. but yeah, man, I love it. And I it's... I think I th- feel like every time I get a chance to work on another project with another artist, I, I learn more about about producing and recording, and mm-hmm. so I I love it. Yeah. As an outsider looking in, it seems like Denver is is the place to be now. I mean, everyone I talk to is like, oh, they're either moving to Austin or they're moving to Denver, and <laughs> a lot of musicians that I know are moving to to Denver. I mean, there's like a there's a real scene right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool, man. I th- I, there's always been a great music scene here and a great community of of artists and bands. And um, 
but I don't think it's ever really had the spotlight that it does now. Um, right. There's always maybe like every, you know, five years, there's maybe a band that comes out of Denver. Like we, we were that band for a while and then maybe the Lumineers were that band for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny that they're a, a Denver band. They're all from New Jersey. They're all from New Jersey and I don't think any of them live here anymore. Yeah. But same with, same with one Republic. I mean, you know, none of them are here anymore, but uh, I mean, to be fair, I'm the only Frey member that still lives in Denver. So that's just, I guess, part of what happens. But, but uh, yeah, I, and now it's, it's like Nathaniel Rateliff, you know, him Mm -hmm. and, and the night sweats. That's kind of like, this is their time now as ambassadors of Denver and the music scene, which is, I mean, they are fantastic ambassadors. That's for sure. That those guys. I mean, Nathaniel's been busting butt here in Denver for so long. Yeah. Um, we used to open for him like in 2004, you know, and uh, so he's he's earned this for sure. And his the Night Sweats are all like guys who've played around Denver for a long time. They're they're like a an all star team, you know, mm-hmm. of of the Denver music scene. All of which we kind of grew up with and either played in bands with or opened for or they opened for us and so it's yeah man huge fan of those guys as as people much less musicians and that band as a collective is pretty special so that's awesome yeah man denver's a great place there's there's a ton of great music here and a ton of variety now there's like cool indie stuff happening in denver amazing folk uh stuff like in boulder and um it's awesome man it's a great place to be what how is the the live music like how are the how are the venues and i mean covid aside and everything like yeah. all the, so we're when i was coming up like we were in this town and there was we were in westchester pennsylvania and there was like 15 clubs that you could go and play at whether it was you know a place that hold, held 85 people all the way up to a couple hundred people yeah um and now 90% of those 95% of those places are all DJs. Right. Uh right. and you know don't have live bands anymore or anything. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, before you could you could work four or five nights a week, you could you know, you could be playing and make a make a living doing it and staying local. Mm-hmm. Is it like that in Denver still? I mean, is there still a lot of live music venues there? Yeah. So Denver has some great venues. Uh I I think it is still hard for an up and coming band to certainly to make a living um, playing mm-hmm. the live circuit. Um, there's a lot of opportunities here, but I think the reason that it's hard to make a living doing that are for reasons I think that are much bigger. I think there's an, there's a lot of kind of economical precedents that are set that are kind of hard for people to overcome. And so you end up getting, you know, the people who are booking these shows are booking for for bands a night and it's a seated place with food so that they can make more money it's just you know it's kind of a it's a hard thing um i don't think even before covid people weren't just going out as much as they Mm -hmm. as they used to um but all that to say there what's so rad about denver is there's still venues opening you know um and there's still new places, both large AIG, AEG venues and also small independently booked places. Um, so mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's fantastic. The opportunity is certainly there if, if you want it. Like I was talking about that young artist that I worked with, Cole Shifley. He's, you know, in his mid uh, 20s. And this is the first full length album he's ever put out. And he contacted the Boulder Theater, which is an 800 capacity place. And he booked his album release show there because, because he could, you know. And I'm sure that that was partly because of COVID, you know, the capacity was smaller and they're trying to get people in there but point is uh it's all here uh, for you if if you want and there's there's little places like a barbecue restaurant um that has great shows and a lot of awesome outdoor venues with just people hanging out drinking beer but then there's also like smaller listening rooms and theaters all the way up to like uh mission ballroom which opened a couple years ago that is I think now my favorite venue in Denver, it's maybe it's scalable. They can sort of make the room smaller or bigger, but oh, that's um, cool. It's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's maybe I think between three to 6,000 capacity. So it's like, uh, you know, Tame Paula and Wilco, my morning jackets playing there soon. So, mm-hmm. um, it's awesome. It's a big venue. Yeah. Not, I mean, not to mention, uh, Red Rocks is, is obviously our claim to fame here. It's the best. Is, it is the best and it, it doesn't get old, man. Like I grew up going to shows there as a kid and, and then, you know, for the fray, that was sort of a benchmark mile marker for us. And every tour and every record cycle was the Red Rock show. Um, and so it's fantastic, man. It's a great place for live. Music. Yeah. Yeah. Between, between Red Rocks and uh, the Gorge, I don't know Yeah, which, I mean, you take it's like you could just take those two venues and then yeah. that's all you need just bounce back and forth yeah oh man yeah. there's so both of them are just amazing venues yes amazing venues so what's the best place for people to follow along with with what you got going on and and any you know projects that you're working on well i should ask you this beforehand I, you you would mention that the phrase on hiatus yeah. um is there is there talks of you guys uh starting back up again and and recording again or are you still on hiatus uh there's always lots of talks we're we're constantly talking but i i don't really know what that looks like right now it's pretty uncertain um we life has moved in four very different directions for the four of us and uh and looks very different than it did a, a while ago and i think us stepping back and taking a moment to pause and uh, live some life outside of that has been revealing mm-hmm. and yeah so life looks very different and i'm not really sure what the future holds you know for the fray we've got a couple shows we entertain offers here and there when they come um mm-hmm. when they come up but but yeah we're not not really sure that's kind of a big question mark fair enough yeah um so if people do want to follow you know what you have going on and uh new projects that are coming out and all that where's the best place to do that yeah uh really just instagram my instagram instagram handle is tall mountain um so yeah tall mountain on instagram is pretty much where i live i've thought about a website at some point i don't really i don't know what i'd put on it right now so maybe (laughs) maybe someday i'll have a website but right now it's just kind (laughs) of just instagram there's like stuff that I'm producing or working on or things in the studio or music that I'm just digging and listening to. At the moment. So Paul Mountain nice. on Instagram. Yeah. 
and we'll put that in the show notes for the uh for the episode as well so everyone can follow you up so well ben thank you man i appreciate it i'm glad we got the uh the technical hurdles uh we overcame those you know. <laughs> yeah we so did two drummers figured out the uh the technical stuff so <laughs> uh but in all sincerity man i i really do appreciate you sitting down talking having an open honest candid conversation uh shared some some great information for sure and uh although we don't see eye to eye on the counting crows record i'll give you a pass <laughs> on that uh but no kidding aside uh i, I really did appreciate this conversation man it's great chatting with you uh you too man thanks for having me it was an honor to be a part of uh of your podcast yeah thanks thank you There you have the one and only Mr. Ben Wasaki. And you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 626. Also, if you haven't already, I know I asked this a lot, but if you haven't already, please go to iTunes and leave a rating or a review. It's good for the podcast, lets people know about the podcast, and helps it show up higher in the search results and all that kind of stuff. So if you could do that, it takes about a minute. I would truly appreciate it. Also, if you have anyone that you would like to see on the podcast, uh, shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com or just hit me up on social um, at Nick Ruffini on Instagram or at drummersresource, whichever one. They both go to me. So uh, I'll get it either way. So other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.